Okay. Good morning. Good morning, brother. How are you? Well, happy Father's Day. You too. Um, I didn't email you anything, but but I'm going to. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I would like for you though to not now, of course. Uh, I am going to say, share a few words, and then and then it's all yours. Okay. Uh, this is a very this is tentative, but I'm, I'm hoping you can do it. SW, uh, because I'm going to be gone for the for three weeks. Anyway, put okay. this in your Bible. Check it out. I will. I and, will. And uh, and if if it doesn't work for you, then we'll get together. Okay. I'll give you a call. That sounds fine. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give this to everyone. It's uh, just outline. Yeah. It's, it's what I've been following of the um, of all 22 chapters. Sure. And I'm going to put it in your Bible, and then. Because the peric the uh, passages are laid out right here, um, really this is a, yeah. this is Beasley Murray's recommendation for the outline, okay. and I've been following it. Yeah. Okay. And Sounds I'm gonna good. Give, I'm gonna give it to them. So how how long are you going to be visiting? I'm going back home tomorrow. Tomorrow, okay. Yeah, I came up yesterday. Did you? Did you? Good. She's working. The school has summer camp. Yeah. Oh. She's working this summer, doing summer camp. So her group, she's got 25 seven-year-olds. Yeah. Oh, my. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good That's tough. morning. Time to get our class together and maybe get us started and give Philip plenty of time to talk this morning. Uh, I know we're going to have some more filtering down. Uh, I was remiss. I did not get an email sent out last week. It's been a little crazy week, and I was out in the parking lot, so I didn't catch everything. Uh, John and Jessica Smith, who are in our class, they went on vacation to Florida. John had some heart issues and spent several days in the hospital down there. They are back now. I saw Jessica this morning, and John's doing okay, but they've still got to run some tests. I think it's an electrical problem in his heart. So they had to, they're going to have to get that taken care of. Uh, and I'm hoping she came down. Uh, our brother, Charlie Chisholm, had a fall this week. And he's, not, he's uh, kind of had a setback. So they're not here this morning. And we need to keep Charlie and Helen in our prayers. Uh, and uh, we just got to witness one of the young ladies, Laura, that sits right over here. Her son, Christian, was just baptized right after service this morning. So he's uh, just turned 18. And we were thankful that we were able to that. Uh, there is a, uh, I was handed something this morning, there is a QR code on the, going to be sitting back here, you can use your cell phone for our Greater Together gathering coming up, first one I think is a discipleship tonight, we host next Sunday night here, so if you can help with food prep or whatever, there's a QR code you can sign up for that, or bring food, uh, appreciate Scotty covering for me last week, because I was out of pocket. If I have any other prayer requests, please get them to me. I will get it emailed out as soon as possible. It's just been a crazy week for me this week. It's a little smaller than normal this morning. Uh, I was asked about my stepmother this morning. My stepmother, as you all know, uh, they had to take her hip joint out back in August, and she's had a lot of complications, been on antibiotics, been in a wheelchair. She finally got a hip about two months ago, and been having a few minor complications, but they were well enough to travel, so they came down this weekend, and we got to see them, have dinner with them, and they went back this morning, just so they wouldn't, they have to take a slower pace, because she has to get out and walk a little bit more, but she's doing better than she has been, so that's a good thing. So thank y'all for your prayers. Do you have any other things? Christian. Christian was baptized. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yes, please. Chris, on, uh, on Friday, 
Father's Day.
in the book of Revelation, chapter 15 through 22. I'll be taking six of those. He'll be taking six of those. And we've kind of divided them up. Uh, the outline that I've been using, you have in your hand. So uh, it's what I picked up. And it's what I put together, plus the help of a great scholar, Beasley Murray. I used what, what he was recommending. And then I probably tweaked it myself as we moved along. These are uh, large passages. Uh, anywhere from eight verses to maybe a chapter and a half or so, and I've tried to follow that <coughs> pretty well. I want you to have it because I think it's important, once again, to kind of see at the very least the, the big picture, this strategic view. Outlines are important. They, they show you where you are in the midst of the forest, uh, and they give you this, uh, this eagle's view down. So uh, if you'll notice, you can turn on the back sheet, uh, on the back side of the one sheet, and you'll see uh, chapter 14, and you'll see 15 begins the seven cups of wrath. Next week, that's what we'll pick up. And those lengthy passages underneath each, each of the major headings is what we'll be doing for the next uh, 12 Sundays. Okay? Okay, great. Uh, so, Brother Philip, if you'll come on up and uh, take over. And you want to move it to the are you good where you are? Oh, whatever. All right. It's fine. Oh, here are your glasses. Here we go. Oh, my stuff, yeah. Okay. God bless you. I'll be here. All right. All right. Uh, please turn over to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Uh, a couple of things at the onset I'd like to say uh, as we get into this particular chapter again to uh, finish up this chapter Something that I had not mentioned before, but I think is something very important to realize, and something that I've, I, I've mentioned or I've alluded to several times, and that's this. Uh, having a familiarity with the Old Testament actually is very helpful for this book. Now, so, of course, we're not going to be able to go through the 39 chapters and all of that. But the point is, though, the book of Revelation relies heavily upon the Old Testament, if you haven't noticed. It very, very much, much so does. What's also interesting is that, you know, most of the books of the Bible, if not all of them, will quote uh, a passage in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation does not, there's no outright quotation of an Old Testament passage at all. It doesn't even happen once. However, there are over 400 allusions to the Old Testament. So although there is not a particular or a specific quotation like you hear, like in Isaiah the prophet said this, or Jeremiah said this, or, or there's a quotation from Genesis, there are allusions to these things in the Old Testament over 400 times. That's why from time to time I will just mention a few of these passages uh, that the writer is likely referring to uh, when he is going through, through the text. So that's just something to bear in mind. Though, although there are no quotations uh, it's filled with images and ideas and concepts that are in the Old Testament itself. Um, another thing I would like to kind of start off with, with this, and then I'll uh, begin in the, in the text. I was reading through a particular scholar, uh, Henry Barclay Sweet, a very renowned scholar of about 100 years ago, uh, and he makes a couple uh, quotations that I would like to, to read here that are relevant to this particular text. Because again, as uh, Vince brought up, you know, there were uh, the, about these folks that were lined up and, and praying because they were going through a hard time. I mean, when he was even saying that, I was just envisioning in my mind the book of Revelation. Other people under the altar crying, God, do something here. Take vengeance on this. And so we can just see them. <clears throat> This is really a book of comfort for anyone who was going through the ringer. That's what it was written for. But it was written to remind them, although you're going through the ringer and you will go through it, there is victory. Not small victory, but major victory. And you will be triumphant. And so that is why this book is so important during a time of um, difficulty. But I want to read just a couple of um, uh, quotes from this particular scholar who made this observation relating to this particular chapter. It's only going to relate to a couple of things, but 
because I believe this, book, this chapter here is also a warning because he says about not worshiping the beast and the importance of that because God's wrath will be poured out on you. Uh, Professor Sweet at one time quoted, uh, I'll quote him, and he said, the denial of Christ by a Christian was a sin for which the church knew no remedy as inos armata, which means eternal sin, which brought a corresponding recompense. Now, I don't fully agree with that, meaning that it's an eternal sin, but it was so strongly believed that if you burned incense to Caesar, you've abandoned God. And the church was not as tolerant about that at all. And so that was a very serious thing. And then he also makes this, which I think a very astute uh, observation as well. The Caesar cult supplied the saints with a test of loyalty, which strengthened and matured those who were worthy of the name. Very, very powerful quote. Um, trials and tribulations are for our advantage. They are not to hurt us. God is not here to torture us at all. But what God wants us to be are mature Christians who rely and are loyal to Him under any circumstance. That's what He wants. So although I believe that most of the problems we face, at least in the United States, most of the difficulties that we have are likely self-imposed. There are some that are not. And for those that are not, God is calling us to grow. He's not asking us to stand still, but to grow deeper into Jesus. And the, for lack of a better term, the best way for that to occur is through conflict and difficulty. That's where you actually grow. And so, um, God isn't doing it to be mean. He's doing it to cause you to grow, to be loyal, to be faithful to Him. Very, very powerful thoughts. Okay, in chapter 14, as I mentioned last week, I believe what we're seeing here in chapter 14 is things from God's perspective. Chapter 13 was more from the human perspective as far as having this beast and the allies of the beast, meaning the, uh, um, uh, the emperor or the, the Roman Empire and the emperor worship and the cult that would force um, people to um, bow down and basically have, this, uh, have the emperor to be deified. But from God's perspective, things are a bit different. And so in, in uh, chapters 14, 1 through 6, we have God uses the lamb. And with the lamb, there were 144,000. Again, that's the perfect number. 12 times 12 times 1,000. So again, this is the same number that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. And so I believe it's just talking about the redeemed primarily here. But that the lamb is, is, um, is there with, with them. And that these people would be uh, singing and all of this stuff going on. But then there's three angels. And this is where we were a little bit last week. And uh, the first one has um, spoken out this word about this having eternal gospel. And he says with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him and make the heavens and earth and the sea and the springs of the water. Um, fear God. I don't believe he was talking there to non-believers. I believe he was talking to believers who are going to go through a rough time. He says fear God and give him glory. As opposed to obviously the emperor. Second, he says, fallen uh, is Babylon the, the great. I believe that Babylon here, and actually through scripture, there are times whenever Babylon is representative of being the political uh, empire that is opposed to God. So in this case, I believe that Babylon is representative of Rome, and so I believe that they would have understood that as well. But he says they are fallen. But it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. But it is so certain, the author says, it's fallen. As well, and we're going to read about it being fallen in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation as well. There, um, 
And he says, and uh, Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink of the maddening of her adulteries. Again, that's just essentially uh, Rome was very good for getting people involved in all sorts of, of vices and sins. And they, had a, uh, they were very, very powerful. They, uh, uh, merchants would, would deal with them. And so the thing is, though, Rome was a very strong influence, a bad influence on a lot of people as well. And also, uh, if there's comments or thoughts that you want to, or questions you want to raise before, you know, before we go on, just, just raise your hand. I'll do my best to see it. I'm typically pretty good. So if you scratch your ear or something, I'm going to call on you. So uh, please go ahead. Yes. This, I believe, I believe what we're just seeing here, for, yeah, uh, I believe what we're just seeing here is just a vision here. So uh, I believe it, it is saying angels. So in that sense, I would say we're dealing with an, uh, angelic beings, but we're not so supposed to suppose that these are literal things that people are hearing or seeing either. I don't believe there was a literal angel that was over uh, any of the people there and said, fear, fear God. I believe this is just a, is basically I believe what we're having even throughout the book of Revelation is basically a play, a pageant in front of God's people. And is this sensational thing that's letting people know of what, what's going on. And angels, of course, are messengers of God. Whether or not that would be an individual of preaching, I could certainly see that. Or I believe just in vision, it is just uh, angels, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, uh, 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 angels are God's ministers and they do what God wants them to do. So I believe they're just speaking out words for, for God. So I would take it more as angelic beings, but it's in a vision. It's not literal in that, that sense. But again, just because something isn't literal doesn't make it not true, because it is true. We do need to fear God and give Him glory at all times. Um, so he says, okay, the third angel, and this is where we're going to spend a little, little more time. Uh, I, mentioned a, I mentioned a passage last week. We'll try to go a little bit slower with this. A third angel followed them and said with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and the image and receives the mark of the forehead, they too will drink of the uh, wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength um, into the cup of wrath. Um, uh, we looked at a couple of passages. I believe one uh, there we, we could look at was um, um, uh, Isaiah chapter 34. As I mentioned last week, uh, 8 through 17, talking about the fall of Edom. And that's really what we're going to be dealing with. The, the, this next section here, I believe the writer is going to use three different images from the Old Testament when he deals with the suffering or the uh, punishment that God is going to inflict on those who would worship the beast. Because he says... Um, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. I believe the three images that are actually given from this, one would be in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. It burned down sulfur. There is literal. <laughs> Uh, the cities were destroyed. And I believe that is the image that we're supposed to get whenever there's something wicked and God is going to act. God is going to inflict punishment on those who worship the beast. And so I believe the first image here is dealing with like the image of Sodom and Gomorrah. So just kind of picture that in your mind of Genesis 19. But he also has another image there. Uh, let's see here. I want to mention this. If I go over here, I want to make sure and get those. Yeah. I think I got it over here. Well, um, the one I, I was thinking about, let's see if I can get over here. Uh, okay, Sodom there. Okay, okay, okay. Actually, the, the first two would be Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah one. Number two, the destruction of, or the overthrow of Edom in, in Isaiah chapter uh, 34. Um, but then... There is another image I believe that we have here because it says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. I believe there he actually has the image of, in the days of Ahaz, of um, what's called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a, um, 
is a particular, it actually was a place. It's in southwest of Jerusalem. Yeah, is there actually, it's a park. It was a very, actually, Van and I, when we went there in 99, we actually went to the area of where it would be considered um, uh, Gehenna, or, or actually the Valley of Hinnom. It was just a valley. Um, and actually, it was beautiful. Actually, that's the most beautiful part around there. <laughs> I noticed that. Um, but the oh, image. <laughs> yeah, oh, right, right. Aside, aside from that, uh, but, but, but it was a horrible place. Because actually, it's first mentioned in the book of Joshua, chapter 15, and the Valley of Hinnom was mentioned as one, one of the southern um, uh, borders there. Uh, I believe it was the border between Judah and Benjamin, and it was described in the Valley of Hinnom that was whenever uh, Joshua was allotting the land to the different tribes. And so the Valley of Hinnom is mentioned there for the first time. But later on, a bit later on in the days of Ahaz, it was a horrible, horrible place. That's where they offer human sacrifices. A horrible place. Children were offered there as well. One of the names for in that area of the Valley of Hinnom, um, uh, actually called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom because it was his property. It was, the name was also changed to the uh, Valley of Slaughter as well. But that was a place where some of the kings of Israel and also some of the kings of Judah, Manasseh in particular, offered human sacrifices there. And I'll just read a, um, a passage actually or two about that. Let's see if I go over here to that. That's, uh, let's see if I can go over here to that. Okay, where's the best place? Jeremiah 32. Uh, I'll, I'll read over there just, just real quick. Like I said, Jeremiah was, was um, a guy who uh, lived during the Babylonian captivity. And in this passage here, uh, it talks a little bit about that in uh, Jeremiah 32, verses 30 through 35. I'll just read it briefly. The people of Israel and Judah have none, nothing but evil in my sight. This is God speaking. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger in what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, the city has so aroused my anger with wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me in all my, in, in, uh, by me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets and the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, they turned their backs to me they have, uh, and the, uh, not their faces Though I uh, taught them again and again, and they would not listen, respond to discipline. They set up their village, um, their, their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice your sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded it, nor did I even enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. It happened in the days of Ahaz and it happened in the days of Manasseh. And so that place, also known as Topheth, that was another name that was given to him, um, that this, this general area. And it's really interesting about that particular name, Topheth, because it could have a couple of different meanings to it. One is that it deals with music. It's almost like the word Toph in Hebrew, meaning to drum. And the concept that could be interpreted for that is they beat these drums while these kids were being sacrificed to drown out the screams. Drum. And also the name Toph also means burning. Burning. So it was a place of torment, suffering, and burning is what that was. And I believe those are the images that John had in mind in chapter 14. I don't believe he's actually describing hell, but rather... But at least but these images are there. This is what God is going to do on those who worship the beast, who take the mark. God is going to release his wrath upon them. And I believe those are the three images that God produces here, or John produces here, to get people to think of the seriousness of the, of the crime that they're doing. Yes? Um, I, I, I'm not trying to... 
Okay. <laughs> but here's my question. If this mark of the beast is past tense, it's all occurred in the first century or second century, yeah. that's one thing. If in fact it occurred then, but it's also something in the future or is still something in the future, we're hearing more and more this, this AI is developing at lightning speed today. AGI is coming right on board right behind us. Just want to ramp that up. Uh, there are movements around the world uh, with the, with the um, uh, World Economic Forum and others to build this one world monetary system, which is going to lead eventually to uh, a drive for a one world government, which seems so uncannily like what we read about here. So if the mark of the beast is to come in the future, and this idea of having something on our forehead or something on our wrist, I mean, they're implanting uh, chips in dogs now, so we So that if we're going to buy or we're going to sell or trade or do anything in this economy, we have to have that. Um, I'm not even asking a question. I'm just talking. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, really, well, I'm trying to get to a question. Do you believe that this is a something that is coming in the future, and that those Christians who receive the chip or whatever it happens to be will be Christians who will be forever lost? Let me at least say this at the, at the very onset of that. Why I do believe that this is something that is primarily first and probably even second century. But, but just to address the, the thing, will they be eternally lost as, I, as that quotation that I had from Sweet at the very beginning? Because Christians in the first century were not tolerant. Anyone who, who did that, basically, that they were essentially making that the unpardonable sin. So, so that, that, that's a very strong thing. Um, I do not believe that's an impartable sin. I do not believe that. However, though, let, let me at least say, say this. With regard to prophecy in general, it always has to have relevance to the people to whom it was written, prim primarily. But I will say this, uh, not necessarily endorsing what you're saying there specifically, but I will say this. Um, I believe we all face, like, like we, we don't have Rome here today, but we have our own Rome, whatever the evil empire might, might be. And I do believe that there, even like in, in case of prophecy, there are prophecies like Isaiah 7:14, which had relevance in the 7th century B.C., but also had relevance 700 years later. Could there be something in the future that would, that would highly restrict Christians? I wouldn't pass it, say, no, certainly it could. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but the point is, of course, it hasn't happened yet. But if something happens, that could be something very, very serious. Because, but they were faced, yes, I'll get you one moment, Teresa. They were faced with life or death. Because of their decisions. And it may be that in the future, some of us or some of our kids or grandkids will be faced with life or death decisions by what they do. And that, so, so in that sense, whether it comes through that or another way, I do believe that these things are relevant to us today in, in the same sense. Yes, Teresa, you want to say something? Yeah, and, and a lot of that's true, you know, but how that's going to materialize down to us, we, we don't know. But all I will say is this, if it ever comes to it, but I would think, though, it, you know, just trying to think in a, uh, um, uh, a sne sneaky way for these people, I would tend to think that you'd have the chip in you before they would know that they're going to compel you to say, but now that you do this, you have to do what we say. Well, 
Okay, then that's when you do as, uh, as was mentioned in Josephus last week, um, whenever the Jews were told that they're going to have to have a, the statue of Caligula put in the temple, they fell down before Petronius and said, kill us now because we will not do that. We may all be faced eventually with something like that. Maybe we won't, but maybe we will. But God has not protected us from that. He didn't for our first century brothers and sisters. He won't do it to us 21st century Christians either. Do you want to say something, Michael? You know, one other thing I'd like, like to say here, and then we'll try to finish up this last section, is very important, and something that you just brought, brought up, uh, Michael. We need to realize this isn't simply human beings against human beings. You're trying to force them to do something. It is good versus evil. It is worlds colliding. That's what it is. When Jesus came and was incarnate, it was worlds colliding. Yeah. Satan believed he won when Jesus was crucified. He thought he'd won. He didn't. Even right before the crucifixion says, now the world is judged. You know, the thing is, though, if our, if our spiritual eyes were opened more, and I'm not, no, no indictment here, but just even my own, if our eyes were open more to what's going on, we would be like the prophet who, who was at Dolph, who was surrounded by all those people. And how a servant came out and said, oh, we're surrounded by the enemy. And what did he say? He prayed. He said, open his eyes so he might see that those who are with us are more than them. It's a spiritual fight. 
is what it is. And that's what revelation is about. It's a spiritual fight. It doesn't matter if it happens, this physical stuff. It's a spiritual fight. Colliding worlds. Good versus evil. And this book is to remind you, God is victorious. And he always will be. Always will be. But that doesn't stop the fact that you're going to have to go through the mire at the same time. Because you will. Yeah. I, I concur. If our eyes could be open right now, I think we'd see angels all about us. Yeah. And perhaps demons as well. But here, I believe we see God's angels. Yeah. And the last part here from 14 through. Um, no. Yes, oh, I'm sorry. But on all of this, yes. we have to remember 1 John 4 does um, 4 4. The last part of it says, because the one who is in heaven is greater than the one who is in the world. Very true. And it happens to be the very same author who wrote, wrote both books, too. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's the same author who wrote both books, too. You're, you're absolutely right. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. We do need to bear, to bear that in mind. And as that is a segue to verse 14, because here we have God's second element of what he will do. It is using the sickle. Now, I'm, not, I'm a little bit uncertain on exactly what he's referring to here. I'm, I'm starting to lean toward this is just simply showing the end as far as what God is going, going to do. Don't know, but I kind of get, get that idea. And the reason why, uh, and I'll explain why in just a moment of why I think that that's the case. He says in verse 14, I looked up and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was a one like the son of man with a, a crown of gold in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The idea of the son of man, that goes back to the image of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And there is talking about deity there, God himself. Son of man, that was the most popular and common phrase that Jesus used for himself and the one almost Mark exclusively uses for Jesus. And it is referring also to his divinity, that he's the Messiah. Then another angel came out of the temple and called out with a loud voice to him who's sitting on the cloud. And I believe the one who sits on the cloud, likely here I believe it's referring to Jesus here in all probability. He says, take your sickle and reap from time, from the time uh, uh, to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The word ripe there, it, it, was, it comes from the word which means dry because later we're going to have it, the, the grapes that are ripe, two different words. This one here refers to dryness, so it likely refers to a wheat harvest. And so um, let me, me, me go through both of these here, then, that, that, then I'll try to... Um, do it. So he says, so he swung the sickle, um, seated on the cloud, and swung the sickle over the earth, and the earth, earth was har harvested. But then he says, then there was another angel that came out of the, uh, heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. This is a different one, by the way. This one here is a smaller sickle. And this here was for gathering grapes. So the two sickles are different. But he says, this, still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called out with a loud voice, who had a sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. That means mature, they're ready. The angel swung the sickle, gathered the grapes, threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. We read earlier about the wine press earlier in chapter 14. Uh, in chapter 14, uh, verses 9 and following. Remember the image, and again, that image comes from Isaiah 63, 1 and following, where we have someone stomping the grapes, and it's like the blood being scattered all over the clothes. That's the wine press of God. It's not going to be good. So we have here, it seems to me, two things happening. One is the harvest of the righteous, the wheat. Then we have another one, the gathering of the grapes, throw it into the wine press, and the suffering. And, that, and the reason why I think that is probably what it is, because it also deals with angels doing this. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 13. And let me actually go over there. Because there's two different parables that Jesus gives uh, there that I believe are relevant, at least, not to some degree, at least with this. I don't know if John had this particularly in mind. Uh, he, may, he maybe did. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. And, and the two combined. combined. The harvest and the second 
Yes, go ahead, please. Yeah, and there's no doubt that, that, that John had Joel uh, 3.13 in mind. Absolutely. As I mentioned, this book is filled with allusions of the Old, the Old Testament, and, and, and multiple ones, like I said. Um, but there's two parables that Jesus gave with, with regard to the very end. One is called the parable of the weeds, and then uh, the, uh, also the other one is the parable of the net. And I'll just read here um, the explanation that Jesus gave with regard to the, uh, the wheat. The one who sold the good seed is the son of man. See that phrase, son of man again. The seed, the field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of uh, the evil one. And the enemy who sows them are the, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. The weeds are pulled up and burned in fire so that it will be the end of the age. The son of man will send out angels and they will weed out the kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the blazing furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I believe there we have the harvest of when things are going to happen at the very end. Angels are going to come down, swoop down, and it's over, buddy. When God moves, he's going to move powerfully. But then also there's the parable of the net. Jesus said this, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled them up from the shore and they sat down and they collected the good fish in the basket, threw the bad fish away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing fire where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So those, those two things, the parable of the, of the um, weeds and the one of the net is like what's going to happen at the very end. I'm not sure I, I'm leaning toward that of what John is talking about at the very end. When God is going to act and do something at the very end, he's going to do it. And he's going to use it by the help of his angels. And then, and then the picture is there of a, of a person who's going to be harvesting. He's got this sickle and he's going to just go down there. He's going to take the good stuff, bundle it up, and it's going to go. But the grapes, they're going to get it too. They're going to be gathered up. They're ripe, ready, thrown into the wine press and squeezed squeezed and it's I get the idea that that it, it that it's the end there it may not be referred to that but at least that's the image that I get from what John is actually writing but then it talks about one other thing and I'll just I'll at least address this because um, we got to be careful not to think that things are going to be literal in this sense because he says, um, uh, after the angels swung the sickle on the earth, gathered the grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath, they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the wine out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridles for the distance of 1,600 stadia, or about 200 miles. <laughs> um, literally not, not true. There's not enough blood in the world today to even remotely come close to that. But actually, this, I believe, that concept actually comes from the book of Enoch. It talks about the very same thing, blood going up to the bridle of a horse. Same thing. In other words, the point is that we're not supposed to think, oh man, how is this possible that it's going to be this 200 mile um, river full of blood up to about five foot high? We're not supposed to think like that. What we're supposed to think is when God is going to judge them, he's going to do it mightily well and very effectively. And that's just what he's going to do. It shows who the victor is going to be. When worlds collide, it isn't going to be a close call. God is victorious. The question is, where will you stand? Where will you stand? So, thoughts or comments? We're almost over. Good thoughts and comments today. I really appreciate that. But as I said, um, um, while I do believe it's all relevant to the first century, Dealing with, they were dealing with Rome. That was their evil power that was there. We have ours too. We have ours too. And so. Uh, every, every day we have to make a choice. Yes, we do. Every day we have to make a choice. 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 Every day we have
Sure. Bonnie? Yeah. And then the beatitude that follows that. Then I heard the voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. Rest from their labors kind of reminds you of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 36. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. There will be a time when we are going to be refreshed. It isn't now. Um, I will just say this one, one comment that, that, that will go. Story is told of this guy who did some mission work over some foreign, foreign country. He built over there for a long time. Finally returns back to, to, to the uh, United States. He's on the plane. There happens to be a celebrity on, on the plane too. So when they get off the plane, oh, when that celebrity got out, every, there was a big crowd. They're screaming and hollering, welcoming this guy back. And when the missionary had been over there for years and years, came out, nobody was there but this little old fella who was picking him up at the airport. So as he walked down to the baggage claim, and the old guy could tell that the preacher was a little bit discouraged. He looked over and said, well, what's bothering you? He said, well, you know, now the other guy got off the phone. I mean, everybody was celebrating. Everybody was happy with all this going on. And the old fella said, uh, let me tell you, you're not home yet. We got to remember, we're not home yet. And death is the entrance to home. So don't give up hope. Our death will be the entrance into the paradise of God. It's a good thing when God calls us home. Go in peace. Come prepared next week. Recapture. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome, What you need? Turn, turn that dude off. I'm trying to figure out how.